Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Hello, welcome to episode 16 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, and this is part two in a two-part series where together we've been exploring the general theme of spiritual growth. How does it happen? And of course, how does spiritual growth not happen? And as you may recall from the previous episode, a point we clarified was that spiritual growth is not the result of human willpower. Growth in Christ-likeness is not like everything else in life we're accustomed to, where if we just work hard enough and set our mind on the prize, then we'll be successful, because spiritual growth is completely dependent on grace, meaning that, as we said last time, it's about attaining and growing into something that actually already belongs to us and that can never be taken away. And so how do we discover that which is already ours? How do we learn our own name? How do we grow into an identity that was ours before our birth? That's really the question we're leaning into today, our part in that divine puzzle. And so without further ado, we turn to the master of paradox and biblical symbolism, and that's the author of the Gospel of John. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned." If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. Here ends the reading. And so right off the bat, I'd just like us to notice how this passage confronts us with a pretty profound paradox which can be stated as follows. Spiritual growth is not something we do, and yet there is something we must do. My Father is the vine grower, Jesus said. It is God's work. Unless you abide in me, you will not grow. It's our work. That is the paradox of Christian spiritual formation. It is first and foremost God's work, and it is our work too. And so to start by working that first side of the street, spiritual growth is primarily 
something that God does, not something we do. Now, this was the main point of the last episode, and so there's no need to recap what's been said earlier, but what I will say is that there is a big difference between bearing fruit and being productive. The former is a biblical value, the latter one of the modern post-industrialized West. And on the difference between the two, the late Henry Noun put it like this, and I quote, In our contemporary society, with its emphasis on accomplishment and success, we often live as if being productive is the same as being fruitful. Productivity gives us a certain notoriety and helps take away our fear of being useless. But if we want to live as followers of Jesus, we must come to know that products, successes, and results often belong more to the house of fear than the house of love. Now, what Noun says here is pretty revolutionary because what he suggests is that our need to achieve and produce whether in the world or in our spiritual life, that this often comes not from a place of love, but from a place of deep fear. And I have to say, I totally agree with this premise, because for so many of us, our big psychological problem is that deep down we are terrified that we have no value, and so we try and produce it. We make the grades, we volunteer, we excel, we serve, In fact, some companies have even adopted this language to assign value to their employees. They'll say, so-and-so really knows how to produce. And in a sense, we're all looking for some way to find our value in how or what we produce. It's like the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. They built a tower but we tend to build an image. And then we take that image into the world and we say subconsciously what they did. Let us make a name for ourselves. After all, if we don't make a name for ourselves by producing the right image, by being a good person or by making more money or by always being the funny one or having the most likes on Instagram, if we're not productive in that way, then what on earth will give us value? That is the question the human heart is always asking. I'm reminded of the story of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10 where Martha stays busy. She is really productive serving Jesus while Mary just sits adoringly at Jesus' feet. And it's Mary, according to Jesus, who has chosen the better part, which makes us wonder who Martha was really serving in the first place. And so spiritual growth is not something we do, and yet we all know we have a part to play. And so how can we speak of the part we must play in our own process of growing up spiritually that doesn't do violence to what we believe to be true about grace and the finality of the salvation we already have in Christ. And the word that Jesus gives us to start to live into this tension is the word abide. Eight times in eight verses, Jesus uses this word abide to describe the part we play in our own spiritual unfolding. 
And this Greek word translated abide means to actively seek to remain. John says we are to actively seek to remain in Jesus. And this, I think, is where spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices come into play. And again, to be clear, a spiritual discipline is not something we do to make ourselves worthy before God, nor are they ways of being spiritually productive. Rather, a spiritual discipline is a practice that we undertake in love in order to help our fearful heart grasp the great gospel truth that God has already made us worthy. In other words, a spiritual practice is a way of training our heart, soul, and mind to know that God is good and that we are loved and that God is always closer to us than we are to ourselves. And so whenever I think about the point of spiritual disciplines, like the reason they're so important, I always think of Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. And in the context of the book of Revelation, The risen Christ is speaking to the church at Ephesus, and basically what Jesus says is this. He says, I know how hard you work, and how devout you are at good deeds, and how careful you are to keep bad things out of your community, and I know how much you've endured. In other words, I know exactly what you've been through. But, he says, I do have one thing against you. You've forgotten your first love. In other words, you're doing all this great stuff, Jesus says, but you don't love me anymore. You've forgotten your first love. And what I've come to believe is that 95% of doing our part to make this world a better place is to do what we have to do to keep that first love burning, to keep that spiritual fire burning, again, not in someone else's heart but in our own. And to me, that is the main value of a spiritual discipline. It is a way of constantly returning to our first love. And there are a million spiritual disciplines to consider taking on. Some will be really useful for you, and some probably won't fit you at all. In fact, right now, by listening to this podcast, you are actually engaging in a spiritual discipline whether you realize it or not. There are so many different ways, creative ways, of remembering our first love, ways that we can abide or actively seek to remain in Jesus. But for today's episode, I just want to mention two. The first discipline I want to mention is prayer. According to the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan, he was praying. In preparation for choosing the twelve, he went up the mountain alone and spent the night in prayer. Mark tells us that after an exhausting night of healing many people who were sick and casting out many demons, Jesus got up early in the morning while it was still very dark and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And so as I see it, if Jesus depended on routine and persistent prayer, how much more so should we? And although there are so many different forms of prayer out there, I want to talk about that which is most basic, which I'll just call simple prayer. And I define simple prayer in this way. Simple prayer is laying before God what concerns us. A pretty basic definition, laying before God what concerns us. 
Whether we realize it or not, we all long for God, but prayer begins with the realization that God also longs for us, meaning that God actually cares about the ins and outs of our actual life. Richard Foster wrote a great book on the subject of prayer, and in that book he wrote this, Today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. End quote. The God of the universe longs for our presence. As the deer longs for the water brook, so God longs for us. And we don't have to fine-tune our lives or sort out our motives to begin praying to God. Such an idea arises from a misunderstanding of both prayer and God. In fact, C.S. Lewis once said that in prayer, we don't lay before God what we think should be in us. We lay before God what actually is. And you know what? There is a lot of darkness in there, but God is light and God is love. And I think God's heart is moved whenever we trust God enough to bring him what's actually inside of us, what actually concerns us. And so here is my recommendation as your priest. If you're trying to begin a prayer life, don't insult God by praying for world peace, if there's a weird mole on your shoulder and you're freaking out because you can't get in to see the dermatologist for another week. (laughs) You know, my point is that in prayer, we always start with what concerns us, with what matters to us, with that which has our attention. And so, yes, obviously, our prayer life will expand from there and perhaps even change what concerns us. But in prayer, we always start with what concerns us. And so a question for you to consider today, are you marking out a little bit of time each day? Um, Not a lot, but a little, five, maybe ten minutes, just to pray, just to share with God what is on your heart, and perhaps even to listen, knowing that God speaks and that your concerns are never far from God's heart. The second spiritual practice I want to share today is reading Scripture. Jesus knew Scripture. In Luke chapter 2, we're told Jesus is 12 years old, and his parents, after leaving Jerusalem, realize they've left without him. Where do they find Jesus? Amongst the Bible teachers in the temple. And to quote Luke, he was listening to them and asking questions. In Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan. He's offered power, fame, and an easier way to establish God's kingdom. But to refute the devil, Jesus must rely on quoting Scripture. And of course, Jesus' cry of dereliction from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here Jesus was praying Psalm 22. Jesus's whole mind and body was rooted in the biblical narrative. And so here's the lesson I want us to see. The question is not, will we be rooted in a narrative? But rather, the question is always, what narrative will we be rooted in? You see, the great challenge of our faith is not merely to comprehend words like redemption, sin, salvation, grace, resurrection, and new creation— 
To the contrary, the challenge of our faith is for these to actually become the lens through which we view and interpret reality. Because you and I, we live by our narratives. We are storied creatures. And a narrative answers some pretty key questions like, Who am I? Why am I here? Am I valuable? What makes me valuable? And what's difficult is that the narratives we tend to hold are many and they compete. There are family narratives and cultural narratives and religious narratives. And these narratives are the lens through which we view life. And if that lens isn't right, our lives will necessarily be off a bit. And there's a big difference between knowing the facts of the biblical narrative, which, you know, is no small feat, but there's a difference between knowing the facts and having the large biblical story be the primary lens through which we view our life in this world. But for that to happen, we have to familiarize ourselves with the Bible and maybe read a little bit of Scripture each and every day. And so those are just two spiritual practices to think about in your own life, prayer and reading Scripture. What does that mean to you and how do you do that? Um, But the real question for each one of us to ask is not how much do we pray or how often do we read Scripture, but rather how is it that I am seeking to abide, to rest, to actively remain, to abide in the love of God? How am I doing that in a way that works for me, in a way that is intentional and that fits with my personality and the real circumstances of my life? Because as we abide, as we put forth an appropriate amount of intentionality into our relationship with Jesus, God the Father will do his work. That is the promise. In fact, apparently when Michelangelo was asked how he carved his magnificent David, he apparently replied, I looked inside the marble and I just took away the bits that weren't David. Each one of us is like a wonderful block of marble. Our job is to abide. God's job is to chisel. We are the clay, Isaiah says, and God is the potter. And so as you go out into the world this week, here's what I leave you with. Trust. Trust that you have already been cleansed and that you don't have anything to prove. Trust Jesus enough to actively remain in him and trust that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. In God's mind, the statue, his masterpiece, is finished. I am the true vine, Jesus said, and my father is the vine grower. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you.